Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we are recording a day later than we have been the last couple of weeks, but we are recording again nonetheless. Um, yes, we are. Here we are back. You know, the um, one thing that has definitely been a highlight over the past few months is uh, change. <laughs> changes in schedule, changes in expectations. And so we had, um, we had some things pop up yesterday that uh, did not allow us to be able to record it yesterday morning. And so here we are recording this morning. Uh, sending right. uh, to to get some of this information out. Um, so, Richard, it's good to see you again. It's nice to be here um, somewhere uh, alone, <laughs> as, as usual. Um, I did hear a funny story yesterday, though. You know the song "Sweet Caroline" by Neil mm-hmm. Diamond. You know, um, and it's "Touching You, Touching Me." Uh-huh. Well, it's been the, the Spanish version has been banned in Spain until the coronavirus is over. <laughs> It just and makes thought, them want to hug each other. All kinds of casualties of this thing. But you, you mentioned um, change and flexibility. Um, I thought about this the other day that we had been making long-term plans in our practice, and now we've had to slow down the aircraft carrier, and now we're, we're making decisions a month at a time. And so everybody's adjusting to this this. Um, the new sort of uh, new set of circumstances. It, so. it is it is a big big change, uh, right. big adjustment. And, um, but, uh, but, you know, for the most part, I think most people are, are handling it. I think most well, people are, you're right. Right. I think we're getting accustomed to the, uh, I think the shock, the initial shock is over. Right. And I think we're beginning to understand, and that's part of what we want to talk about this morning, is that we're beginning to understand that this is not going to go away. We're not going to defeat it. We're not going to overwhelm. It, it's just here to stay, and we need to learn how to live differently. Absolutely, yeah. To, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about some of the various challenges associated right. with uh, reopening schools uh, amidst right. the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic. And uh, right. today, we're going to um, perhaps offer the the final um, <laughs> installment of uh, oh, of, of, of the COVID, right? Yeah, yeah this because theory. there are other issues we want to talk about. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we're um, so we're so overwhelmed by the virus, and and you know you you want to keep talking about it and try to understand it, but there are many other issues going on that we do want to discuss. We do want to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. So so next week we may shift away from this topic just yeah. a smidge. Um, we'll, right. we'll offer updates if there are big updates, but um, but today we're going to talk about some of the short and long term consequences uh, yeah. of this decision and. Um, and, and we're going to talk about it from the perspective of um, of three groups, right? We're going to talk about it from the individual perspective, from the um, government and, and legislative uh, perspective, but also from the from a scientist scientific yeah. perspective. And mm-hmm. and I think that we're going to pretty much do it in that order, though. We're, it's going to be a little bit fluid, I think, because so, um, you've already mentioned something that's really important. There was a um, you know an article uh, published. Uh, recently, that talked about the idea that we just have to get used to the to the fact that the this virus is going to be a, be here. You know, it's not going to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's yeah, not you're gonna, right. Very mm-hmm. unlikely that it's going to be something like you know smallpox or tuberculosis, where we can um, offer uh, inoculations or, or um, immunizations or something and eradicate right. it. It's just right. it's just not going to happen. Right. So we're going to have is going to be like a recurring thing, sort of like the seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yep, get used to it. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it's um, and, and again, this is going to be that idea really fuels a lot of things that we're going to be going through um, today um, from those three different perspectives, because as an individual and you're making decisions regarding you know, what am, I, what, am I, what am I going to do with my kids? Where am I going to send them? How am I going to go to work? How am I going to, you know, what am I going to do when I go to the grocery store? Um, it, it's really important that we think that this is, this is going to be a lifestyle adjustment. Um, you know, once somebody said a, a, a couple of months ago, actually, um, this may be the end of handshakes. Right. That, that no longer will we be doing handshakes. We may just be doing fist bumps or elbow bumps or... You know, this may be doing away with the um, social hug. Um, 
So we may not. Yeah, just, just as men became comfortable with hugging each other, they have to stop, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is what we get. Um, right. But it, but it is a, um, it is going to be a, a, a lifestyle adjustment that's going yeah. to be likely be um, long term. Right. Yep. So, so, um, so, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So, so in, in look at you, you found a, a, a very interesting article um, about, well, I think it was last week, you mentioned that, um, you know, we're talking about reopening schools, but we, no, no place, no, no country, nowhere else have they opened schools at the same time that the, the prevalence rate uh, was increasing or at such a high level. You, you gave some of the statistics and stuff for Germany and some of the other countries. Um, we're starting to get some of that information. Right. Yeah, we're, we're reopening our schools. Um, the federal government and many state governments, Florida included, um, are forcing schools to reopen. And I use the word force literally. Um, there are state mandates in the state of Florida that schools must reopen. You have to get kids back in the classroom. Um, and I found an article written by a a person who is a parent and a teacher. So I thought, well, that, that we get both perspectives in a single person. Um, our governor does not have children of school age, so he can demand all he wants because his kids aren't affected by that. I don't mean to be snarky or critical, but um, everything changes if you have school age children who, and you have to make this decision. It's a horribly difficult decision, okay? And so the state of Florida and many other states have been mandated they must reopen. So we will be reopening. And in fact, some schools, uh, charter schools in Florida have reopened and schools in Georgia reopened. So they're beginning to open around the state. So, so now, the, now that they're reopening, let's see what happens. Right. Okay. We, because we've been, we've been trying to guess, we've been trying to uh, figure out what will happen to infection rates when schools reopen. Well, now schools will reopen, and now we have some information. And so we just, now that they've reopened, let's talk about where, where things are, okay? Right. So this guy wrote this article. What, what attracted my attention when I first saw it was the title, Parents, You're Being Lied To. Um, what's this about, right? So I read the article, and he's really not being hypercritical. But he's saying, this is the reality. You know, I, I'm a teacher. I go to these meetings. I sit in these discussions with administrators. And this is what is actually happening at the building level. And he said, there are eight things that are going to be happening that you, you really need to prepare for. And I think it's really practical advice. The first one is, and, and all this is based on everybody saying schools are important. They're, they're, they're a part of our social fabric. They play many, and they play many roles, um, not only educational, but developmental, um, food, health, safety, um, child abuse, many, many things that schools, that schools do. Plus, if you get your kids into school, it allows the parents to go to work. Right. And that's what everybody's arguing, that without school, parents can't go to work. That's why we have compulsory education laws. Right. I mean, get the kids, get the kids someplace right. so their parents can go to work. I mean, right. we did that over a hundred years ago. So the first one is there will be little or no socialization. People say, well, they have to get back to, kids have to get back to school because they have to be with their friends again. And he's saying, wait a minute, you're only going to have half the student body there, maybe. What, what statistics did you, you were talking about some this morning about how many kids are actually going back to school. Yeah, at the three schools that I work at, um, the 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 rates are about 50 percent 50 to 60 percent okay. of students are going to be in the brick and mortar school the rest have decided uh have chosen to do uh, some form of virtual school right so first of all only half the kids are going to be there and when you go in there those kids aren't going to be allowed to socialize right they're going to be sitting at the social distance right? they're going to be social distancing they're going to have masks on okay so that makes it difficult to talk um, I don't know what's going to, I don't think we're going to have a lot of extracurricular activities in schools. 
I'm not sure that sports teams are going to be competing this fall. I've heard very mixed reports about that. Um, there, there's a couple of high schools that I, you know, I have um, patients who go to some of the high schools around, and uh, right. they're training. They are for football season. For football season. Okay, now there, there's a contact sport. Right. Um, I don't know how that's going. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether sports teams will. And who who's allowed to make that decision? Is that a district decision, a school decision? I mean, we don't we don't really know. I I have no idea. Um, you know, I coach soccer, and in my club, the club that I coach for, um, we start we started training um, our our travel teams, competitive teams, this week. Um, I I had my first practice with my team yesterday. Um, the next the next big club over um, in another town here in, in our same county, um, they're still not starting training. Um, they yeah. still have are decided not to start training. So it, yeah, I don't know what's going to, I mean, you say well, we want to socialize, but are we going to have school plays? Are we going to have orchestras, bands? I mean, all the things that kids do. So number one, he said, we're, we're not going to have a lot of socialization. Um, he said, the kids are going to be unhappy. <laughs> and the reason the kids are going to be unhappy is they think they're going back to school as they envisioned it last year, last school year. And that's not how schools are going to look this year. Right. Okay? They're going to look and feel very differently. Uh, your kids will be taught by somebody who is unqualified or underqualified. This concerns me a great deal. Right. Um, I already talked to one teacher who has been teaching. She was teaching third grade for like 20 some years. Mm -hmm. She's been reassigned to a school and now she's teaching a kindergarten class. Okay, because that's where they need it in that school. That's what, okay, so if you have an English teacher is out and the only person you have is a science teacher who can fill that classroom, believe me, that science teacher is going in there. You got to cover these classes. Absolutely. And, and we, we also know that we have a teacher shortage. So um, be a shortage we're anyway, right? going to be calling upon a lot of substitutes to fill right. some of these, these classroom positions and, and needs. Uh, both in face-to-face -face and virtually. And um, yeah, th th a lot and, of them don't have, you know, specialized training in right. some of these different areas. And many substitutes are retired teachers. That means they're over 60. And are they going to do this for $8 an hour? And, and it's not that they don't know how to teach. We're not saying that they're not qualified that way. They're, right. they're, they're not specialized in, in, in certain areas. I mean, yep. it, it takes, it, it takes a, a particular skill. You couldn't take you know, like you said, a high school English teacher and mm -hmm. pop them in a, in a kindergarten classroom. That right. is a very different set of skills that you have to have, whether you know how to teach at the high school level or not. Right. Um, it, it's, it doesn't, it's different. Correct. And so um, that's going to be a problem. We're going to have a teacher shortage anyway, and we're going to be asking substitutes to manage a very complex set of circumstances because there's going to be so all the things, all the restrictions you have. So it's not like you're walking into a regular classroom anymore. That's over. Number four, um, most schools don't have sufficient air circulation systems. Um, schools in the South um, would have to have very robust air conditioning systems. Schools in the North, um, how do they keep, you know, do they, do they turn the heater, when they turn the furnaces on to keep the windows closed, now you have this air that's being recirculated through the building all day. And so um, that's going to be a that's going to be a risk factor, the lack of air conditioning. Um, the other thing, number five, you said there's still going to be students, even if they return to school, are going to be spending large amounts of time on screen. Right. Because you, you can't ming, you can't put them into groups. So there's going to be a lot of individualized work. And a lot of that work is either worksheets or computer time. Okay. Right. So they're still going to be on screen quite a quite a large part of the day. Yeah. And, and, and the plan is um, for most schools and, and it's, it's understandable. Um, but the plan is for most schools, even face to face is going to have a lot of stuff on online right. and, and virtual because in the event that the prevalence, the, the numbers spike significantly and they have to close schools down again. Um, right. They want that transition to be easier. So if everything else is already online, even if you're meeting face to face, then mm -hmm. that transition is far easier than it was say, at the end of last year where we weren't ready for it at all. That's right. Um, and then number six, he talks about specifically talks about the teacher shortage. And he's saying that until all the schools reopen, we won't know if we have enough teachers or not. And we don't know how many will stay 
right. presumably some teachers say, I just can't do this, or the risk is too high. This, this isn't what I, I assumed. And so many teachers are gonna just, just quit. They're gonna they either resign or quit or walk away. And so we're gonna, we are going to be facing a teacher shortage and we're gonna have to fill that gap. And number seven, um, a lot of teachers are not on board, but they don't have a choice. I mean, they're being told, they're, they're in meetings. He said, and he pointed this out, he said, we, we get input from teachers, but the teachers aren't making the decisions. And many of them are not really on board with this whole thing yet. They want to wait to see what's really going to happen. And then finally- Well, well let me throw, throw in there real quick too, is that, you know, and then who do teachers lean on is the administrators of the schools. Mm -hmm. And the administrators aren't making the, can't make the decisions either. No, no, and this so is- They're left um, with no information. You know, teachers go to who they can go to, the administrators, and the administrators can't give them any other guidance or any other information because right. they haven't been given uh, right. been given uh, marching orders. So, right. and late yesterday, late last night, it was actually late last night, I discovered an article, but I, I have to check to make sure it's accurate. I, I, didn't, I thought about talking about it, but I don't want to talk about it until I'm sure it's accurate. That in the state of Florida, um, health department, health department officials can advise, but they can't recommend. Right, they can, um, they can do. They can't. In other words, if you're a school principal, you can't call the health department and say, "When should I do this? How should I do this?" Because all they can do is they can give you the information. They can't make any recommendations. Well, it's, it was an article from USA Today, right? Um, and I, I, there's a link to it in the show notes um, because it says, um, "Yeah, it, it says they can they can give advice. They've been they've been instructed to give advice on how to open safely." Right. But that they can't recommend whether or not a school should reopen. Right. Right. Which is a, which is a, a, a significant shift from the way that things have always been, because schools have really always relied on health, you know, the health department's um, professionals to to guide some of those decisions. Mm -hmm. and, and now they're being, you know, the health department professionals are, are being advised not to provide those kinds of recommendations. And so that's, again, and once again, a tough see spot. Yeah, once again, you see the experts, the people who should be guiding this, you see them being marginalized mm -hmm. and their, their opinion diluted or not included at all. And, and so that's what, when we talk about the politicization, making this a political issue rather than a health issue has, um, has really interfered with how we're gonna our ability to manage the infection. Absolutely. Because now we have a governor and a secretary of education saying, no, you have to reopen. You have no choice, you will reopen, and you're not gonna have input from uh, the experts. You just do what, do what you're being told to do. And that's no way to handle an infection. There's no way to handle a virus. Right. Um, so that, and, and that's what he's saying, that pe you know, the people you're, the, stakeholder, the stakeholders are not committed to what they're being asked to do, uh, the different agendas. And then finally he said, this is not, schools will reopen, but it's not going to last they will start to shut down. Right. And in fact, in uh, Georgia last week, uh, a county school district in Georgia uh, opened up on Monday and by Wednesday, 250 students and staff um, had been quarantined because it just spread to whatever, whatever that school was. Right. And, um, and I'm sure all of you are aware that uh, there was a video taken of students in a school in Georgia and most of them, they were in a crowded, they were crowded in a hallway and none of them had masks on. Right. And the, stu the students who took the video were suspended yeah. from school because they broke school policy about using video during school hours, you know. And so they've been reinstated, but still you get a sense of the, um, I, was just, I don't know what word to use. The, um, well, well I, you, you put, you know, the, the reality is, is that the, all of us that work in schools, are, we're going to do the best that we can to make sure that students stay social distance, uh, maintain social distancing, they're gonna, you know, to wear their masks and all that kind of stuff. But it's going to happen. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that anybody is under any delusion that, that, you know, every student is going to wear their mask every moment of the day, um, right. except for when they're eating lunch, they're going to take their mask off. When they drink water, they're gonna take their mask off. Um, it, it's going to happen. And, and no matter how much monitoring, but there just isn't enough monitoring to right. be able to make sure that they always have it on and they're, they're mm -hmm. always following those rules. So 
Um, and then if a student doesn't, then what do you do? Do you suspend them? Do you, um, you know, give them school suspension? Do you give them some kind of detention or something? Um, and, and what is that doing? You know? So yeah, it's, we, don't have, we don't have a policies and procedures manual for this yet, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. we're building it as we we're building it as we fly it. Right. So so from the individual student and parent perspective, you know, there's a there's a lot more to consider with those short and long term goals. Yes, we want our kids back in school, mm -hmm. um, but you know, as you were saying in Georgia, it took three days. For right. 200, before 250 or so um, people had to be quarantined because of exposure. Um, because, the, you know, and now the, the government piece, um, what was originally stated as it relates to, and I'm being cautious, I know Richie, um, what was originally stated that, that kids are almost immune, Right. I, I, I don't know that there is a such a thing as almost immune. <laughs> um, you're either immune or you're not immune. You, you either can get it or you can't get it. There, there is no almost immune. Um, and so, um, so we know without a doubt, because we have lots of kids who have contracted um, COVID-19, that kids can get it. And we know that kids can pass it on to other people. We, right. We've seen it happen. We, we know that it happens. So, so to continue the myth of um, kids' immunity or almost immunity um, is is really just trying to it confuses our mind and confuse right. the situation. Um, and all you have to do, you don't have to disprove anything. All you have to do is introduce doubt. You right. know, and there have been plenty of people who've talked True. about that. All you have to do is introduce doubt or the possibility, like hydrochloroquine, death, that medication. All you have to do is say, well, it might work. And, right. and that's all, it, the science says it doesn't work. The studies that have been done said it doesn't work. But all you have to do is make a little possibility that it might. And right. now you have, uh, you have a different, now you have two battle lines are drawn. You right. Know, against. And again, when you're fighting a pandemic, you know, the virus doesn't care what you think. Right. The virus is an opportunistic infection that does what it's going to do, regardless of how you think or feel. Absolutely, and it will, and it will, um, grab hold and right. take root in whatever organism it can take hold in and, 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 and right. uh, it doesn't say oh well you know you're five so i'm not going to to um, you're immune no, you're not immune yeah. yeah i mean one of the one of the um difficult things about this virus is that it's spread when there are no symptoms right you know and that and that makes this virus different what have we always been told? Um, you're, you're contagious if you have a fever. Right. No. You know, um, that, that, that tends to be, the, and even, we're, we're even kind of, um, to me, it, it's a little bit um, with, along that same line when we say, okay, well, we're going to check temperatures before you can enter. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you can not have a temperature and still have, COVID and still spread COVID. No, so it's it, really interesting. Yeah, that's right. We're trying to we're trying to say that okay, well, if you're not coughing right now and if you don't have a fever right now, then you're okay to come inside. Right. Right. Yet we know that that's not correct from a scientific. Yeah, we're not we're not saying you don't have it. We're saying there's no evidence that you have it. Right. Well, it doesn't matter. Transmission doesn't matter. What we're really be, saying is, um, I, I'm. Uh, I, I'm I'm covering my backside um, right. because I'm asking you these questions and I'm checking these things so that if you come in and you infect everybody, I can't be held liable because I checked this, um, yeah. you know, this hard facts that, that I can look at um, and make a decision. Um, okay. So, yeah, there's a whole legal side to this that nobody right. talks about. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So so here we have this individual saying, "This is what it looks like to me as an individual. This is what I think is going to happen as a parent." This is what's going to happen to my kids. And as a teacher, this is what's going to happen to me as a teacher. Okay. So then we move on to a government. The, the, the federal government continues to address these issues. And um, there was an article entitled, The House, a House Committee is Split Over School Reopening. Um, this is the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. So they met, they brought together experts, they brought together 
public health experts, teachers, uh, parents, and they, they have this committee that meets to try to address the issues. And they, they address four issues. One is, what is the risk of infection and transmission among children? So, so give, us, give us the data on that. The second is, there's going to be a need for supplemental funding. Um, in the column, on today's column, uh, you talk, we discussed that in today's column, that we're gonna need more supplies than usual. Absolutely. Who pays for those supplies? We're gonna need PPE, protective equipment for teachers. Who pays for that? Do the teachers have to provide their own? You know, if you work in a hospital, the hospital provides it. Um, if you work in a health clinic, the health clinic provides it. Are we gonna provide uh, the PPE that they need at a level that they need? Absolutely. Or is I, that I, up to them? I've been, I've been meeting with some of my schools and, and some of the um, teachers and, and everything, and, and absolutely. You know, you, you think about some of these different classes um, right. and, and different schools where the, the schools have traditionally been responsible for providing school materials for, for a lot of the students because of socioeconomic issues, because mm -hmm. of you know, students forgetting whatever. Um, but, you know, a teacher can't have, you know, we, we heard, I heard this past week, uh, teachers can't have a classroom library uh, for students to, you know, during reading time for the students mm -hmm. to go pull a book off the shelf to read uh, because- the, the students can share. Yeah. Because you don't want students sharing materials. Right, so you, they right. can't share that, right? So they can't, have a, they can't have a cup of pencils where students right. can use a pencil and then put it back and, you know, so that there's some, mm -hmm. they have to have um, individual materials for each individual student. Right. Um, that significantly increases the cost of everything. Yeah, what you're talking about is if you have 10 students, you need 10 sets of materials. You need a set for every student. Right. Um, and not because every student will need it, but just in case every student needs it. Because if you only have five and mm -hmm. three students need it one day, but two other students need it another day, and then that next student that needs it. Um, but also, um, the, you know, when it comes to personal protective equipment and some of these other things, yeah, you know, a lot of times school administrators and school and teachers are having to purchase some of these things out of their own pocket right. and, and hope that they can be reimbursed because there is no guarantee that they will be. And one of the things that we've known about teachers is even before this crisis hit, teachers have always spent their own money on supplies. Right. I mean, we have a teacher store in, in our city and they go in there and buy materials that the district can't afford. So they spend their own money. Well, now we're talking about spending your own money by a factor of four or five or more. Right. Know? And who's going to buy all that stuff? And it makes me a little bit crazy when people will say, um, well, yeah, but, you know, there is that line on your, your 1040 at the, at the, you know, when you do your taxes about, you know, how much the, the cost for when you're a teacher, you know, there, there's a, thing, mm -hmm. a line there where you can put right. in how many. That, that's, it's great that that's there. Right. But, you know, it's. That's not 100% reimbursement. It's August. Right. And right. that might come in April of mm -hmm. next year. So right. you're going to spend that money now and, and hope to be, yeah, hope to get some, you know, some credit for it. You're not going to get it back. You're going to get credit for it, yeah. um, you know. Uh, uh, six months, eight months from now. Um, right. So it, it's it's nice, but it, it doesn't account for the expenses that the teachers have right now. Right. All right. Um, okay. So that's so. One is transmission. One is funding. One is guidance to allow schools to implement mitigation mitigation protocols. In other words, how do we? Uh, what do we? What do we need to do in a school to keep infection rates low? or to eliminate the, rate, uh, the rise in infection rates. And, and we just talked about that a few minutes ago, that um, health officials in Florida aren't allowed to even make recommendations. Right. Okay, so how, how do we guide those decisions? And then finally, how do you ensure equity in remote and classroom, versus classroom learning? Because we have standardized, we have high stakes tests at the end of every year, okay? So our students who are doing it online, are they getting the same amount of skill development as students who are in a classroom right or if you have to close you know, how do you how do you ensure that both groups are getting the same education and i don't think you can i don't think you can ensure that but that's an issue that they discussed so the first one is our, like we talked about earlier where we're not even sure that you know the teacher teaching that u.s history class 
has expertise in history. Um, yeah. That could be a, a substitute teacher or it could be an English teacher or you know, a teacher very skilled in teaching but doesn't know that subject matter to the, to the level that they can actually, you know, teach it like a, you know, a, a history um, professor could. That's right. A, a, a teacher is certified at the elementary school level, but there's a huge difference between teaching fifth grade and teaching kindergarten. Right. If you're a kindergarten teacher and you suddenly have to teach fifth grade, that's a whole different skill set. Okay. But you're still, you're still, you're certified, but are you qualified? Right. Um, so are children, are children immune? Uh, short answer is no, they're not. Um, they're not almost immune, as you said. You're not, you're not almost immune. Um, you're either immune or you're not. And children are not immune, they are getting it. We talked about the summer camp in Georgia this summer, 50% of the kids were infected. Um, the death rate among children is small, 1% of death is it occurs among children. Um, children, that means 24 and younger is how they define children. Um, so 448 people, 24 years of age and younger have died out of a total of 162,000. Right. Okay, so. So the overall percentage is low. That's right. But if it's your child, you don't care about percentages. Right, it, it's, it, it's the overall percentage is low, but you know, there's always that, that concern about aggregated data where, where you just make a whole bunch of things we don't. Um, and you're right. It doesn't mean that it can't happen to. And you don't know. Life. You don't know who it is. Right. right. I mean, children are dying. Children are getting sick. Um, you just don't know which kid is going to get sick. Okay. They, but they, they do get it. They do spread it. And finally, they do have less severe, they do have less severe symptoms. Mm -hmm but they can still spread the disease. Right. They can spread it asymptomatically and they can spread it with very mild symptoms. And, and we don't know the long-term long consequences right. of, mm -hmm. of the virus because they may have um, milder symptoms now, but we don't know if it's gonna cause uh, lasting damage to their lungs mm -hmm. or to their, um, to their heart or anything like that. Um, we, just, we just simply don't know that yet. Right, yep. Now, a second issue they talk about that they discussed was educational health versus physical health. There is a controversy in our country, raging in our country, that people are saying, yes, we have to be concerned about physical health, but we also have to have to be concerned about educational health. Now, everybody agrees that, it be, that the best case is that we reopen schools and get kids back in school. But as soon as you do that, you have a health concern, right? So you gotta mitigate the health concern. Number two, this is gonna work, it will worsen the achievement gap. Right. Because while wealthy families have all kinds of be wealthy, families that have resources right. do have alternatives. But if you're in poverty, which is 25% of the country is, you don't have you don't have a lot of alternatives. You have to rely on the public schools. You have to rely on teachers. Um, I'm a teacher myself, so I can teach my own kids. We have that luxury, you know, if we have to. Um, we have flexible schedules. We continue to work. So if you have resources, you have educational alternatives. If you don't have resources, you must rely on the public school. So those people who must rely on the public school are usually people in poverty. They don't have computers. They don't have internet connections. They don't have the resources they need right. to benefit from online instruction. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's not like TV. We have universal, you can have universal TV. You don't have universal internet. Right. Absolutely. And the, um, it's because this is the epitome of the, the two tier education system that we've talked about before, um, where you have those with the resources and, and, right. and then those, those that don't. Um, but the, the, the idea that also that you can have students transitioning between online learning, brick and mortar learning, Right. They can go back and forth. And so, um, you know, if a student, as you said, um, you know, if a student is, is, is doing one and then switches to go do the other, right. um, or they, they don't really have the resources online, or, you know, we, we hope that the students that are logged in and doing the online learning are actually those students and not somebody else. Right. You know, we don't, we don't know that. So it's, 
you know, it, it is very challenging to monitor all of those things on, mm-hmm. on a scale of the size that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Thousands of students. Right. Yeah. The 50 million, 50 million K-12 students in our country. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's on a large scale. Um, when kids are in school, you have teachers who are trained to spot abuse and neglect. Mm-hmm. When kids are at home, you don't. So another issue with educational health versus physical health is child welfare. Um, I don't think I don't think child abuse rates are dropping, but reporting is dropping. Right. Okay? So, because we don't know you know, what you, you can't report what you don't see. Well, and if we know if we go by any of the other data, you know, Mm-hmm. When a student is at risk for abuse, the more time that they spend in the environment within which right. they can be abused, the more likely right. they are to be abused. So, um, you know, there is that concern. Mm-hmm. And then you have the issue of food insecurity, right. where um, children, many children, this is, this is their only meal of the day, is what they get at school. And when they leave on weekends, teachers will give them food to take home yep. so that the rest of their family can eat, at least, you know, get them through the weekend and get back to school on Monday. So if kids aren't in school, there's an issue of food insecurity. Yeah, um, I mentioned this in, in a podcast during the last school year that um, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking. Um, I remember a student, uh, very specifically a student who got in trouble at school one morning mm-hmm. and was gonna be sent home. And the student asked, if they could stay until at least after lunch, because they knew that if they weren't at school for lunch, they wouldn't have. Um, we need that day. Right. Um, so it, it is, it's heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. The, yeah, the virus has definitely brought up those um, differences, uh, SES, uh, finance, economic differences. Um, also, when do we return? Uh, who do we rely on to return? And what we're being told is that the infection rate should be between 3% and 5%. In South Florida, Southeast Florida, the Miami and Miami-Dade and uh, Broward County, the rate is around 10% and it has peaked at 20%. So what you mentioned earlier in, the pro- in this podcast is that we're sort of an experiment because other countries went back to school when their infection rates were below 3%. We're sending them back when the rates are higher than 3% uh, and higher than 5%. And so uh, we are experimenting here a little bit to see what's going to happen when infection rates are that high. Well, and and this is where we come to that, uh, uh, another area where it's vastly different between what the scientists are saying and what politics are telling us, what the the officials are telling us and advising. Um, You know, scientists are consistently, pretty consistently saying Yes, we should, kids need to be back in school. However, right. I mean, there's a lot of information that comes however, it comes after the however. Um, right. And, but we're just kind of, that's often being ignored. Um, right. So, yep. And then you have the last issue that they addressed was financial considerations. Um, you can open schools, but it's going to be very, very, very expensive. Okay. I don't think anybody has really calculated the, the cost, but you have to have, procedures in place to mitigate the spread. So you need equipment, you need testing, you need contact tracing. Um, you, you can't fill up your buildings. You have to split schedules. Right. You buy more buses or do you have a shortened school day? And you know, there, there are numerous considerations, all of which um, require money. Um, you have to have technology to support online learning. Um, there's a figure thrown around that we're looking at probably $200 billion to equip schools and families because you can't say, we're going to do online learning when 20 or 30, what did you calculated in your school last year that about 30% of students didn't have, they didn't have internet or they didn't have a computer. It's somewhere between 20 and 30% um, needed one or both of those. Right. Right. And so you can't, you can't simply say let's do online learning because in fact, they're upwards of 30% of your students don't have, the ability to do online learning. So yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine that a lot of these students um, can do online learning when we were just talking about how a lot of them aren't even sure if they're gonna have dinner. Right, that's right. And I have parents who were telling me that, what if you have four kids? Right. Do you, do you have four computers? I mean, right. you're taking, that's, that's, that's an expensive operation. Um, who pays for protective equipment? And do we, 
do we as a nation, should we now think about providing high-speed internet to every household in America? Right. You know, we did it with electricity. I mean, I'm sure they had this discussion years ago. Though, well, if you don't live in the city, you can't have electricity. If you live out in the country, you're just going to have to continue to use kerosene and oil lamps. Um, and I'm sure they had that same discussion. Railroads, you know, well, the railroad will go here, but we can't go everywhere. Right. But maybe it's time to think about universal high-speed internet. Right. Um, the other thing that, one of the discussions I had was, should the money, this $200 billion, should we just try to focus on people in poverty who don't have it? I have high-speed internet in my home. I don't need... I don't need that money for high-speed internet. I'm not gonna spend it because I already, I already have it. But I know people in town who don't have high-speed internet. Right. So should we target the money to those who need it? Should we be buying computers for poor families? Uh, should we be um, giving them access to high-speed internet? Uh, maybe we should target how this money is spent. So these are the discussions that they're having at the federal level. This is the subcommittee on uh, coronavirus crisis. Um, and they're discussing these issues but we still don't have clear answers right. as to how to proceed. Okay, right. and it's not coming. And unfortunately, this has been made a political issue, and we have disagreements where we should have agreement. Right. Yeah. Because, as is the case with everything that is politicized, um, people take mm -hmm. one side or the other, and then they they become firmly, pretty firmly rooted right. in those in those uh, sides. And, um, and, and we fail to, we, we oftentimes tend to uh, fail to find resolution, find right. a, a common um, goal, so. Yeah, the worst thing that could have happened with this virus was that it became a political issue. There was a report issued the other day that said, uh, in countries that have managed the virus, kept it low and managed it, it has nothing to do with the type of government you have, whether it's a, 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 a dictatorship, a, an autocracy, or a democracy, or socialism, or it doesn't matter. What matters is in places where the health experts were the decision makers, right. the rates were low. Right. In every country where the politicians, Brazil is a good example. You know, they have a, this, this, Bolisario, their leader said, I don't believe in this. He never wore a mask. Right. And Brazil has the second highest uh, infection rate in the world, second only to the United States, which took that same, it was that same approach that we don't really believe in this and we don't think, we don't believe in the science. Where, where the scientists were marginalized, infection rates went up. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't have, doesn't matter what type of government we're talking about. It right. depends on the role of the scientists. And so that is the science portion of all of this. And that is, we, we need to be listening to the scientists. We need to be listening to those who understand and are researching what this virus does and how it affects us. And, and you know, they have methods of looking at, you know, the trends and in the way that the virus um, attacks the body to be able to make some decisions and make recommendations. And it's just left to us to listen to them and to and to make decisions based upon the the, the sound science that they're providing. Um, right. You know, we, we have to. I was talking to somebody the other day, and and they were um, said something along the lines of everybody can have their own facts. Yeah. <laughs> no, a fact is a fact. Oh, I um, love that. Everybody can have an opinion. Um, right. but a fact is a fact. And we can disagree with um, what we think about the facts. We can, we can be disappointed with the way in which the, the facts affect our life, right. but a fact is a fact. And um, the, the, we're going to get facts from the scientists, not from politicians, not from you know, our neighbor's experience per se. We're going to get facts from the science. Right. And the scientists may disagree. Right. Okay. But you say, well, this scientist said this, and you can get statistics to prove anything. That's not the point. Scientists may disagree, but unless you, you can only solve the disagreement if you have data to look at. Right. If you have the same data to look at. Okay. The advantage of science is not that you're going to get total agreement. Right. The advantage of science is that we're all looking at the same picture. Well, well, and the, the value of disagreeing is that you find 
conditional variables. Right. Right. So if if I find that, you know, if I find this result in my study and somebody else finds something very different in their study, what right. was the difference in our studies that right. made the results different? And, right. and that is like huge information. Right. That's how right. we find out that, okay, it, it affects this group of people differently than it affects this group of people. And right. there, there are things that are like that. Um, you know, when I, when I think about science, um, I, people have a misunderstanding of science. They, they seem to think that you do an experiment and you end up with a complete bronze right. sculpture. Okay. Right. And I always think of, you know, those forensic people who do, um, who build faces from right. bones. Okay. And they put a little bit of clay, a little bit at a time. Uh -huh. And finally, after hundreds of pieces of clay, you have a bronze sculpture. Okay. Right. That's science. You have a hundred, you have hundreds of pieces of information that you keep layering and layering and layering and layering until you get an accurate picture. Right. That, and that's, 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 that's what science, that's how it works. Yeah. That's a nice way to think about it. I, I think about it as a, um, as a spiral, a spring. Mm -hmm. um, where you, you ask a question and you, you work to find an answers to those questions. And then just as you get the answers, um, you, you realize that it didn't answer all the questions and you, now you right. have a question right. and now you, you know, or somebody asks a question that you didn't consider, you right. know, well, what about this? And, oh, geez, I didn't think about that. Right. So then you go back and do another one. Right. And, and somebody else says, well, wait a minute, I did that and it didn't work that way. Why not? Okay. So let's go back and do it again. Right. And it's that repetitive layering process right. that produces useful information. You know, it's not a single study. It's not a single perspective. Right. And, and, if, and if we only have one study and we're, we're trying to make decisions based upon right. one study, we really need to think about what we're doing because right. that's just not a good idea. Uh, and because science works that way, because it's incremental, it's easy to introduce doubt. You right. know, you can have a president or a governor or a, you know, a, an academician that's a, there's a, a Academician at Yale who's who's gotten into a little bit of trouble because he's saying that no hydrochloroquine really works, you know um, That's so it's not just the politicians. I mean there are scientists who are muddying the waters too. introducing right. doubt All you have to do is introduce doubt right. Absolutely. Okay. So. Speaking of science um, The last article that we were posting is from the Atlantic. The Atlantic is doing a really good job uh, following this virus uh, They're very I think they're very thorough um, in their research, okay, I, I don't see a lot of criticism in the Atlantic. They have real professionals uh, doing this work. And the title of this article and what struck me was, the coronavirus is never going away. Right. As we look, it's August, as we look to the fall, we're about ready to enter the last third of the year, September, October, November, December. What are we looking at? What's it gonna be like? Is it gonna get better? Is it gonna get worse? Um, we don't really know but this is the first glimpse that says this virus isn't going anywhere. Right. Um, it's not going to go away. Uh, worldwide, 16 and a half million people have been affected on all six continents. I don't think it's reached uh, South uh, or Antarctica yet. Um, the scientists are now telling us this virus is too widespread. It's on every continent. It's too widespread and it's too easily transmitted. Mm -hmm. It's too transmissible to go away. It's a very crafty, opportunistic infection, and it's going to find places to go. Um, you can suppress it, even if we get a vaccine. And this, is, I think, is very important, because people think, well, we're going to get a vaccine, and it's going to be over. Um, not true. A, a vaccine will suppress it, but it won't eradicate it. Right. And there are 12 viruses for which we have a vaccine. Only one, and that's smallpox, has been eradicated. And, it, and that, I think, is worth repeating. The vaccine, even if you have universal vaccination, will not eradicate the coronavirus. It'll suppress it. It'll keep you, you know, you'll have lower rates and milder symptoms, but you're not going to eradicate it. Of 12 viruses that we have vaccines for, only one smallpox has been eradicated, and that took 15 years in a worldwide effort. Well, and, and, and just think about your flu vaccine. Right. You still have to take your flu vaccine shot every year. That's right. It doesn't, you, one shot doesn't do it. And how many times, because it's not happened to everybody, how many times have you got your flu shot right. 
and then you get the flu. And then you get sick, right? Right. Because there's different strands and there's different this right. and different that. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just because we have a, a vaccine doesn't mean it, it, you're, you're safe. We, we don't even know how long the vaccine will last. That's right. And, and people say, well, I've had it. I've had Corona, so I'm not going to get it again. It's not like <laughs> yeah, you probably are going to get you get you get flu more than once. Right. You get colds more than once. These are all the same virus, so they're all Corona. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's just called a coronavirus because of the shape of the uh, of the cell. Right. Yeah. <laughs> for the virus, right. it, it has spikes that make it look like a crown, which is what Corona means. That that's, yeah, and that's why it's called COVID nineteen because this is the twenty nineteen version. Of, a, of this virus, okay? But it's just a, there's a whole cluster of coronavirus. SARS was a corona. SARS is a coronavirus, right. So speaking of SARS, SARS is closely related to, it's related to COVID-19. Uh, SARS appeared in 2002, 8,000 people were infected, but with very vigorous socialization, contract testing, contract tracing, and quarantining, it was, snuffed out by 2004, so it took two years. But that was a very low infection rate. We're talking about 8,000, not 16 and a half million, okay? And so, a very low infection rate. Um, COVID is different. Yeah, It's spread more easily, and it's spread without symptoms. Right. And people who don't know they have the disease can spread it. Right. Um, and that's what's made this, this virus so different, okay? Right. Um, how long does immunity last? Okay, I have people saying, "Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure I had it in March, so I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm not going to get it again." We don't know how long immunity lasts. Right. For SARS, the immunity lasts two years, about two years. If right. you get it, it's likely that you won't get it for another two years. A common cold is a coronavirus. You can get, you can, you can get a common cold, and three weeks later, get another one. Okay, it does, just because you have it, just because you have the antibodies doesn't necessarily protect you from reinfection. Okay? Right. So we don't know how long it's going to last. Um, there were, but the scientists are telling us that with the coronavirus, with this COVID virus, we're going to continue to have big pandemics with smaller events occurring every year. Right. Okay? So um, if it lasts for two years, if this infection it's, it's almost a year now that, that we've been dealing with it. Remember, this is COVID-19, so this right. appeared in 2019. So it's almost been a year. If it lasts for two years, it could peak every other year. That's the way these viruses work. Mm -hmm. And so you may need a booster shot every year. Right. So we're going to get vaccines, but just like with the flu, you're going to have to get it over and over again. You're right. going to need to be inoculated every year. The other thing that's going to happen is... We are entering the fall and winter of the year. And the way, because this virus is in droplets, that's how you transmit it, the droplets last longer when the temperature goes down. Right. So what is being predicted is that as temperatures drop, the virus is going to be more uh, viable. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hang in the air longer. And they assume that because it's going to hang in the air longer, that the infection rates are going to increase. Right. That's why they increase. That's why viruses are winter cold. You know, colds and, feet, colds and flu occur in the, in the winter months because the virus stays alive longer. Right. Does its damage for a longer period of time. Okay. Um, we also have... Um, for, for example, we have the flu virus. Um, the flu virus um, has many, many strains. Um, in 2009, we saw, the, we saw SARS in 2002. Then we saw a swine flu, H1N1, appeared in 2009. It's never disappeared. Right. These things don't disappear. They might change shape. They might mutate in some way, but they don't go away. It's, it, it continues to circulate in the winter months. So over time, over time, you might develop an, we might develop herd immunity to swine flu. But there's going to be another virus that comes up. I mean, you're not going to end all viruses. And so you might control one, but you're going to get new ones. Right. 
um, each year or every couple of years. And so now we're dealing with the coronavirus, this COVID-19, the coronavirus, this new coronavirus. Um, we'll eventually manage it. We'll eventually have a vaccine. We'll eventually have herd immunity. Enough people will get it. But it's going to continue to cycle through the year. Right. And the way our immune system is built is that it's, it, it is seasonal, but it's also circadian. Right. Because there are some parts of our immune system that work better during the day and other parts work better at night. So it depends on the virus. And there, so what we have to get ready for are the, are the effects of the colder weather and the fact that this is a problem. So you have schools reopening at a time when the temperature is going to drop. Mm-hmm. And so now you have almost a perfect storm. Right. And, and I think we, we should anticipate that uh, numbers are going to increase again. Right. Okay. And yeah. it's going to affect schools. Right. So it's important, you know, as we're looking at this from the individual political and scientific um, perspectives that we right. we think about these short and long term consequences, you know, whether it's um, immediately getting kids back into school um, versus the long term effects that this is going to have on, on education, on policy, on our economics, on our families, our lives. Um, and, and so we need to be pulling in information from all of these sources, but certainly listening to the scientists because they're going to give us um, more information, um, you know, that doesn't have to do with being reelected, that doesn't have to do with any of those kinds of, you know, economic decisions or anything like that. We need to be considering our health and our overall well-being because that is, you know, it'll be great for the economy to improve again right now, um, but it wouldn't be good for the economy to improve right now, only for it to crash again in two months when you know everybody has to you know can't you know leave work again right. um, mm-hmm. and, and it crashes again. So right. let's be wise about it. Let's be smart. Be informed. Be educated, and right. and make the decision that's based upon you know the best case scenario, not just for you specifically, mm-hmm. but right. for for all of us. Um, because that's how we're going to get through this. We, we, all, we all have to be in this together and, and make decisions that are going to help all of us. Right, right. You know, I, and, and that's it's a good point um, to end with the scientists because scientists already know how viruses work. Right. I mean, we, we, we talked about SARS, we talked about swine flu, we talked about the common cold. These, these are all corona type viruses. Scientists know how the virus works and we have to deal with the virus. We have to, we have to acknowledge that a virus is an opportunistic infection that's gonna go wherever it can. It's a crafty little thing that will go wherever it can go. Right. And so we know, scientists know how to manage viruses. We've been doing it for a hundred years, okay? So don't, don't marginalize them for the sake of an election or the sake of the economy, because the economy can get a heck of a lot worse if we don't get this thing under control, okay? It's bad now, but please believe it can get infinitely worse if we don't get this thing under control pretty soon. Uh, we've been lucky with our um, red, what's the drug? Reds, reds, res veneer, red, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of the treatments. Oh, no, no, no. The United States has, the United States has bought the entire world supply. Good for the United States, but guess what? <laughs> This is on six continents, okay? So the countries that have, like China and the United States and other industrialized countries that have money can buy up the vaccines and the treatments. It's still going to rage out of control in countries that can't buy those things, okay? And it's still going to come back here. So there's, there's no way to outsmart this thing. It's a worldwide problem that requires a worldwide solution, okay? And so, um, Let's let's listen to the scientists. They know about this thing, and and we have to let them um, um, lead the discussion. Uh, don't marginalize them. That's the, the the most tragic part of this is that the scientists, the experts, have been marginalized, and their voices um, are less and less um, apparent. When was the last time Fauci was uh, standing beside the president? You know, they've been pushed aside, right. um, and that that is going to um, be problematic. Absolutely. So um, so I think that wraps it up for today uh, pretty soundly. Um, and, and hopefully this uh, short series on um, back to school with COVID-19 
Um, right. Next week, we'll be getting onto some other, other topics. So again, if, if something comes up, we'll be sure to provide some updates and everything yeah. for you. So my guess is, I think we're going to see more of the same. I think as as more schools reopen, our schools don't reopen for what another week or two weeks. Okay. Right. If they reopen, if they reopen in two weeks, um, we'll. Uh, I think we're going to see more of the same. I, I I would be surprised if if things got better over the next two weeks. So we just have to prepare. And uh, what worries me is we're entering flu. We're entering the winter fall and winter, which means all the flus are gonna come back, flus and colds, okay? And also we're entering the holiday season where people want to get together. You know, this is the, the last quarter, the last third of the year when people wanna to get together. So there's a, there's a lot going on in the next couple of months. So stay informed. Absolutely. So, all right, well, that is it for today. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid.